Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Admiral Mike Mullen, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff when I served in the White House under President Obama, dropped by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago yesterday. We talked about Trump's decision to pull U.S. troops out of Syria, state of our alliances today, his historic testimony in support of repealing the don't ask, don't tell policy, and his unlikely upbringing as the son of a Hollywood publicist. Admiral Mullen, it's great to see you again here at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. You know, usually um, you have you have an incredible life, as people will hear in a minute, because um, uh, no one would have predicted, given where you started, where you ended up in life, um, a whole different world. But we'll we'll get to that. Um, but so much is going on right now that is so much not just in your area of expertise, but in the area about which you care so passionately that uh, I would be remiss if I didn't start there because I know people are going to want to hear what you have to say. The first is about policy, and the second is just about institutional coherence. On the question of policy, uh, what has your reaction been the last few weeks watching the situation in northern Syria unfold from the time the president had his call with with um, Erdogan in, of Turkey and withdrew the American troops from northern Syria to where we are today. Well, it's good to be with you as well, David. And I do appreciate your dedication to the institution of politics and what you've done here. And it's Thank good, you. so it's good to be back with you. Uh, I think you know my reaction has been similar to. Uh, to many in terms of um, the sort of immediacy uh, of the withdrawal. Uh, One of the things I think of in this is is that uh, Jim Mattis resigned as Secretary of Defense last December based on a decision the president had made at the time to pull troops out of Syria. And I thought Mattis articulated the reasons for that very well, uh, uh, among which were uh, pulling out among colleagues, leaving colleagues on the battlefield. Colleagues meaning the Kurds who had fought side by side. The Kurds and the 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 totality of the the force, if you will, that was has been kludged together in recent years, which has had a pretty extraordinarily positive impact in defeating ISIS and and uh, essentially calming uh, uh, roughly a third of the country of Syria. Uh, in this war. And then the issue of longer-term stability and commitment to allies and friends and all of that. And and in a very short period of time, it seems as though we've undone that. Um, and for those of us that served in the military and those on active duty right now, uh, one of the golden rules is you never leave a buddy on the battlefield. And uh, that's the essence of many of the uh, comments I've received from military members uh, right now, because that's essentially what we're doing. This is not, uh, this isn't a group that uh, we have distance from. This is a group we've lived with for the last several years, who've sacrificed thousands of the Kurds, thousands of their own lives for this cause, and then to wake up one morning and find out that we're going out the doors is pretty catastrophic in terms of the mission on the ground and then the relationships that they thought in one case were great uh, and, and in, in, a, in a very, seemingly in a moment, uh, the relationship was destroyed. Yeah, I was struck in, uh, there was some reporting out of uh, Syria today, and it said, um, 
residents threw rocks and potatoes at a United States military convoy driving through one of the major cities in Kurdish-held territory, which I won't try and pronounce. Uh, In video posted online by a local Kurdish news outlet, uh, men hurling potatoes at an armed vehicle shouted, No America and America liar in English. Yeah, I think betrayal is probably the word that that in the last uh, week or two weeks since this uh, started uh, is the word that sums it up for me. And we have betrayed our friends at a strategic level. uh, I think... And Washington loves to look at winners and losers. Uh, I think every entity that we would like to see lose in this is going to win. And that's Russia and Vladimir Putin. That's Assad in Syria. That's Iran and Rouhani. Uh, That's Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, That's sadly, and we wouldn't want to see them lose, that's going to be the Syrian people who've been through this devastating period of uh, war in the last several years. But those that we that oppose us are going to come out winners in this, and uh, those that have supported us uh, are going to come out losers. And that's really a sad state of affairs. And presumably ISIS. Uh, and ISIS too, yeah. Um, is the, the, the notion of an ISIS resurgence. Is- yeah, I, I think, I don't think there's any question that they're, they're going to come back and that uh, that, those statements from so many individuals uh, in from so many different points of view all agree that uh, ISIS uh, this has given ISIS a new life uh, and there's no question that they will resurge in time and in fact then we're going to end up as public enemy number one for ISIS we're going to end up having to deal with them again the president spoke today about uh, about all of this and defended his uh, decision talked about his promise that he made as a candidate. And he said, I'll I'll tell you, I want to bring our soldiers back home. If people want to leave them there, I'll take that every day, meaning his position. All I I know you were in Dallas. He had a rally there the other night. He said, all I know is the place went crazy when I said we'll bring our soldiers back home. He said, I've... uh, uh, they, uh, they may feel that in Washington, that this was the wrong decision, but I have to do what I've got elected on, and I have to do what I think is, is right. If I got elected on something and I think I was wrong, I'd second-guess it, but they want our soldiers back home. He's very blunt about this. Yeah. He made a promise. And I have to ask you, because you know, you and I were talking earlier about the sort of the, the Vietnam hangover that lasted for 30 years. Yeah. There is also an Iraq hangover. And he's not wrong that we spent trillions of dollars, thousands of of Americans lost their lives. I know you grieved every one of them as as a commander and as as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But there is this, my guess is he is reaching an audience when he says, why should we be involved in, you know, battles between these ancient rivals, 7,000 miles away, it has nothing to do uh, with us. I mean, politically, he's probably hitting a, striking a chord there. Yeah, I, I think that's true and, uh, from the standpoint of hitting the political chord. My concern is that uh, our engagement in each of these wars that we've been in, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and now this one, uh, is really focused on what our interests are as a country. And I would put, uh, I, I tried to describe them as vital national interest. And I think if you believe that ISIS will resurge, and most people do, then I think it's very dangerous to bring our troops home. Troops, when they deploy for a long time, they always want to come home. Uh, but at the same time, they're also willing to go and sacrifice for those vital interests. Uh, I'm concerned in Afghanistan right now because there's there's this move to bring the troops out of there as well. We'll see what the president's final decision is. But it's the same thing. There are many terrorist groups that live on that border between Afghanistan and Pakistan who threaten us either aspirationally or operationally. Uh, And if we just leave, then we'll have to deal with them uh, again as well. And if I just look, look at Iraq and how rapidly we came out of Iraq, that resulted in the the growth of ISIS, if you will. So those are very real empirical lessons that we've really learned. Uh, I don't think that I, we have spent four to five or six trillion dollars. We have 
overseas in these wars. We have huge needs in this country, and I certainly acknowledge that. I just think we have to be very judicious about how we bring uh, troops home, how we isolate right now. Uh, Our country has a history of isolating after wars. That's very natural. Uh, I just think we have to be very careful about how we isolate and what we what we leave alone or what we leave others, quote-unquote, who live closer to do because the United States of America is still the United States of America. And there are a lot of people around the world that resent who we are. There are a lot of bad guys that would come after us given the chance. And I think, and I use 9-11 obviously as an example, I think giving them the freedom to be able to do that is very dangerous. So in that regard, if we have to deploy a few thousand troops to ensure that doesn't happen in the future or to reduce the risk as much as we can, then I think that we ought to do that. What about the alliances, not just the alliances with the Kurds, but all the other allies in that region and and allies around the world? Uh, What is the impact of of this very, very – uh, public and glaring uh, event of our withdrawal from I mean, there's a few a, a small number of troops, but a, a yeah. really a really major impact. Yeah, I I think it almost puts an exclamation point on uh, what we have been doing in terms of uh, creating questions in our allies' minds over the last. 10 years or so about whether we would be there for them. And in particular, I mean, I have friends in the Far East, friends in the Middle East, uh, even friends in Europe that wonder what the United States uh, will stand up for now. And I think that's a in, in, in a time of great uncertainty. And, and this is almost a capstone event in that regard. Uh, and those 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 friends are oftentimes members of institutions. NATO would be a great example that that really uh, they wonder whether NATO's can be the NATO that it has been. This institution that has has helped us preserve uh, the order, if you will, since uh, since it was established after World War II, and other institutions and alliances like that. And will the United States, having pulled out of uh, an agreement, uh, you know, with Iran uh, on nuclear weapons, having pulled away from TPP, uh, will the United States commit itself to alliances to other countries as we have in the past? And at least from my standpoint, I think now that's an open question. Isn't that what America first was, though? I mean, isn't that sort of this is what on inauguration day uh, he. he uh, President Trump. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think, obviously, I think this is what he means. I, I think we can put America first and do other things. Uh, although I would argue the strength of those alliances, the strength of even the investments, sometimes disproportionately in an organization like NATO, that we have benefited greatly from that as a country. So that, so that that in its own way puts America first. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that gets lost on NATO is uh, the amount of the bill that we pay, which was which was significant. The, the other thing that happened in NATO is we had a lot of say about what happened in NATO as a result of the investment we made there. And yes, all of us have argued for some time that you need, if you're a NATO country, to be above 2% and you need to increase your the amount of money you're spending on defense and security. Uh, that said, we were able to move NATO in the direction we wanted NATO to move, uh, you know, from a coalition standpoint, an alliance standpoint, and in great part is because of our investment, not just the money side of it, but the capability side of it, the people side of it, the diplomatic side of it, that really made a huge difference. And alliances in Western Pacific with Korea and with Japan are much the same way. So the payback for those investments have been extraordinary in terms of peace and prosperity, and security, all things which we value. And in, in, in a way, I'd really argue that puts America first. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, if you follow the logic of your argument, you also are suggesting that uh, Americans being jeopardized by 
these decisions? I don't. I don't think there's any question. We are. I, I, it's hard to know how much, and it's hard to know the specific outcomes. But I think we're going to be in a much different place and a much worse place when all of this stops. Whenever, whenever that is. Uh, and at when the same, you say when all of this stops, it sounds like a euphemism. Well, I, I think. I mean, it's continued now, certainly for the last uh, almost three years, and I think it's going to go for another one or another five years, depending on the voice of the American people. Uh, but I think there's going to be uh, you know, a pretty heavy reconciliation in terms of relationships, in terms of uh, institutions, which is going to have to be dealt with, uh, given the pressure uh, that, that those in, these institutions and alliances have been under. And if I'm sitting in uh, halfway around the world wondering what America is, and, and I have America act a certain way for four years or for eight years, that's what America is. So we're going to have to rebuild that. Um, can they be rebuilt? I think they can. I, I'm, I guess I'm a glass half full guy, and I, I, would, not, I would not say that, uh, that, that they couldn't at this point. I think it's going to take a lot of work. I mean, w- one of the things along same, the same lines that I worry about are the institutions in our own country, yeah, I want which, to are, about that. You know, which are being crushed, our intelligence community, our FBI, our justice department, our justice system, uh, our state department. These are institutions that have, flaws and all, stood us well for decades and decades. And now uh, you wonder whether a young uh, American college graduate wants to go work for the FBI. When, when you see significant political leaders, not just the president, but significant political leaders badmouth the FBI publicly. And is that a place you want to have somebody, you, you want a young person to go work? So I think we're going to have a lot of work to do to restore the institutions. And, and we're not going to have a lot of time to do that. We haven't had many times, at least in my life, where major institutions have been broken. You could argue, or I would argue, maybe the military after Vietnam. But it took us 30 years to rebuild the military after that. I don't think the world right now is going to, we don't have time to take 30 years to do that. And we need people to be thinking about how would we rebuild institutions. And I think the mainstream of that will be people, people in every organization. And do we have good people? Are we keeping good people? Can we recruit good people? And is it the prestigious place that it has always been? You, as as I would expect and as I've known you over the years, you choose your words carefully, but at the end of the string here, if you, uh, if you go back to the beginning of your concerns about these institutions, they all point to the president, the United States, and the commander-in-chief, and what you're, you're in, a, in a very elegant way uh, leveling a pretty significant indictment of him. Well, it's but it's not to me it's not all this president. I mean, we've I we've been headed as a country uh when I talk publicly about things that concern me the most. Uh in 2010, I was now famously asked what the number one threat to the country was and it was our debt and our debt was I think about 10 trillion dollars and it's now up over 23 trillion dollars with no end in sight and certainly no political will that I see on either side to be able to stem that debt. Our education system, our K-12 through education system, has been underwater for decades. And, and I worry that eventually, you know, we're going to wake up one morning and we are going to be as uncompetitive as we've ever been. Uh, the political paralysis, the, the, the politics in Washington. In fact, I'd almost like to get back to paralysis. I don't know what the right <laughs> word is. It's, you know, it's so extreme. But, 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 but in fairness, uh, when you talk about in, the institutional assault on the FBI, the institutional assault on the intelligence community, um, the institutional assault, I don't know if you mentioned uh, the, the State media. Department. The State yeah, Department, the, certainly. The media, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all flowing from one place. Well, what I was trying to say is we had lots of problems going into this election. The American people, I think, made a decision that the status quo, more of the same, if you will, from Washington, uh, wasn't going to be satisfactory. And so the American people, you know, in a democratic election, our system elected President Trump. And then he clearly has attacked these institutions. Uh, and he characterizes them as part of the deep state, which is something having 
been in an institution my entire adult life never saw uh, in my institution in the Pentagon as well as in these other institutions that I work closely with. So there has been and it is ongoing a lot of damage associated with that. And that's why I, you know, I think we're going to have a lot of work to repair these institutions and do it in a way that is constructive for the country at the end of President Trump's uh, term or terms in office. Yeah, but but it can't happen before then. I don't know. How, I don't know how it could. I I actually one of the things I try to encourage those who care about these institutions, mostly those who have left them, that they think about how to rebuild these institutions uh, because we're going to be able to, we're going we're going to need to do that. And the media, which quite frankly was struggling quite a bit long before President Trump showed up, uh, also has to I think figure out you know, how it fits in the 21st century, given the changes that are going on in the media. And I'm a big fourth estate supporter, absolutely vital for the country. How do we get that right for the future as well? I was wondering how you reacted to this story about Ukraine and specifically the withholding of military aid uh, while the president uh, uh, pressured the Ukrainian president to investigate Joe Biden to investigate this conspiracy theory about the 2016 election and so on. Well, I, I mean, certainly from what I've seen I'm, in terms of using uh, military assistance, military aid to pressure somebody for political gain is something, first of all, I've never seen it. That doesn't mean it's never been done before, but I've certainly never seen it. And I've dealt with a lot of military aid over the course of my career. And I was actually stunned that it was out there uh, to be uh, to be utilized in that regard. You know, you've said that the military has been the one institution that's not been uh, under assault uh, from the president. But the other day, um, he attacked uh, Secretary Mattis, General Mattis, yeah. as over as an overrated general, called him weak. Uh, I know that you guys are very close, and I was wondering how you reacted to that and how you think that the institution of the military uh, reacts to comments like that. Well, I think certainly the institution takes notice when they see somebody as revered as Secretary Slant, you know, General Mattis. Uh, is uh, is criticized. Uh, I guess based on you know what General Mattis or Secretary Mattis said in his speech to then generate uh, the comments. The Al Smith dinner from where the, he, yeah, from, he, he joked about the president. Yeah, from the president. I wasn't surprised. I mean, the president doesn't leave those comments or those criticisms uh, alone very often. So I wasn't uh, I, I wasn't surprised. I I uh, I still think uh, while. That could be a beginning. I certainly haven't seen the president speak in any way except very positive about the military writ large. He talks about the budget increase. He talks about the best troops in the world. I mean, he he's been very supportive of our military since he uh, since he became president. Uh, so I think, I mean, I'm having watched what's happened to other institutions. You know, my antennas are up, but I'm not overly concerned right now that he's coming you know, after you the You know, Pentagon. one thing about, you mentioned uh, the intelligence community, the FBI. I thought of it when, uh, when Iran attacked the Saudi oil facilities, yeah. and they denied it. And the administration said, well, we have inviolable yeah. intelligence that says they were behind it. And I thought about the fact that, you, you know, you, you can't sort of pick and choose and say, I find that yeah. our intelligence credible when it serves my policy purposes, but not uh, when I find it inconvenient, as in Russia invaded our election. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't disagree with that. I, th- that's the, you're, you're, being, you're, you, you're choosing you know, when to like it and when not to like it, and I don't think that holds a lot of water over the long term. Uh, certainly, I, the the intel I think that they use or they said they had with respect to being very accurate, I, I accepted completely. I what took me back about that attack is how sophisticated it was, uh, and that that just subsequently couldn't have come from anybody but Iran, and uh, and that was that you know later on it was confirmed. Um, so I, but but it but it also just as an observer of politics in Washington, wouldn't be the first time that, you know, someone sort of chose 
the, a convenient spot, you know, on a given issue to support whatever the policy or the politics were at the moment. Do you think the president knows what he's doing when it comes to national security? I mean, just to ask you bluntly, is he taking advantage of the advice he could get and should get before he makes it? We, I know when I was in the Obama administration, we had meetings that were painstakingly long, yeah. probably much you know, you, you probably, there were times when you were longing for shorter conversations. But do you think that he knows what he's doing? And is he, is he getting sufficient uh, in, input as commander-in-chief? Well, for the record, actually, I, to say enjoy is not the right word, but I thought President Obama, who was an infinitely curious president on these major national security issues, I, I, I didn't mind the length of that because I thought he asked pretty good, insightful, They were pretty interesting to watch, questions. I'll say that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure they were. I, it's one of these things that I'm not there, so I don't know. I do know uh, in conversations, I, I do know uh, the, over the last year or two that the president spent a lot of time listening to Joe Dunford. Uh, and I think up until... General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, successors. Yeah, yeah, sorry, General Dunford, who was a, who was a chairman until three weeks ago, mm-hmm. and uh, I do know that he listened to Secretary Mattis. You know, when you know, for the vast majority of time, Mattis was there. But I'm just, I'm not, I don't have enough information to to substantively comment. I mean, I see an awful lot of media reports that you know that he isn't he doesn't prepare he doesn't read and all those kinds of things but i literally have never had anybody tell me that so i i really can't comment on that at this point last thing is um north korea uh you've you dealt with north korea and that issue throughout your leadership in the pentagon uh you've watched how it's unfolded here the president said again today that he has a good relationship with kim jong-un it's a relationship based on mutual respect how do you assess where we are with the north koreans right now and how much should the united states uh respect kim jong-un and any representations he makes. Uh, Kim Jong-un is a really bad, dangerous guy, and I have no respect for him. The information I have received intermittently over the last year or so is that there's been nothing substantial that's happened. In fact, in terms of what we'd like Kim Jong-un to do, which is denuclearize. We're in a bad place with China right now. Generally speaking, I, I think we need to make this happen. We need to put a ton of pressure on China. They're not they're not very pressure receptive right now uh, because of our relationship with them. So I think it's as, in its own way, it's as dangerous as it's been. I worry that all these countries uh, work undercover, if you will, to develop capabilities. So I worry that somehow he continues to develop the capability. And I felt that peninsula was as dangerous as any place in the world for what I would call sort of an explosive outbreak. Uh, on the peninsula because of his army, because of the because of his leadership, and quite frankly, because of the heritage in his family. So I think he's actually as clever as his grandfather, which is worried worrisome. Do you think the president is in danger of being played here by the North? I Korean? think he's being played. Sure, I don't think he's in danger of being played. I think he's being played. That's my view. So let's talk about your incredible life. And the reason I say it's incredible is that most storied military careers don't begin in Hollywood. Sometimes they they end with a Hollywood depiction, but they rarely begin in Hollywood. You grew up in Hollywood, and your dad was a renowned Hollywood publicist. So you grew up around movie stars. Yeah. Actually, it started here in Chicago, interestingly enough, because my dad was from the South Side. Yes. Went to University of Illinois, journalism yeah. major, uh, and then went all good things. Uh, uh, went to uh, uh, California to chase his dreams, and ended up in the early '40s uh, on the uh, on the road with Gene Autry. That's how his uh, that's how his profession started, and then he became. A publicist and was was a I would call a publicist for an A list group of uh, of uh, entertainers uh, in the 
uh, in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. And I lived, we lived in a little place called Studio City, which was aptly named for all the studios that were in the neighborhood, if you will. But I also grew up, I mean, many of the kids were in the industry and we were just kids. And so they were my friends and didn't pay a lot of attention to, to what industry we were in per se. But I did, what I did take away from that uh, and, and grounded by, you know, I've been grounded by two women in my life, my mother and my wife, who, and my mother, who actually was in the business as well, worked for Jimmy Durante uh, in his office. And then my parents met at Republic Studios. And, and when they got married, my mother quit and raised five kids. She quit work and raised five kids. Yeah, it's work. One of the, it is, and particularly these five kids. Um, <laughs> and I was the oldest of them. I actually, uh, and I was a decent bas- high school basketball player. Uh, I actually was on my way to University of California, Santa Barbara, on a basketball scholarship when the Naval Academy came by and recruited me uh, at the behest of a friend of mine who'd gone to Annapolis a year before uh, and his father had chased me and said you really ought to look at this and had I gone to Santa Barbara it would have been a disaster why is that too social you know too much booze you know too much social life not enough studies I would have been home and I'd seen friends do this I'd have been home who graduated ahead of me I'd have been home the next year at the local junior college and I didn't want to do that so you you thought that then that was that's a lot of self-awareness I know for a I was kid. it is seven I mean and my mother would say that somehow I usually for the big decisions I I made them pretty well that's not to say I didn't make some bad ones I did which I just soon not talk about <laughs> um and I was 17 and I got on a plane uh, I'd literally the first time I'd ever been on an airplane I flew to Baltimore in the middle of the end of June showed up in Baltimore. It's 90 degrees, 90% humidity. And I said, people actually live in this weather. I didn't (laughs) think that was possible uh, and started at Annapolis. And this was 1964. What I also remember though, that year, and back then it was all men or young, young men is I met kids from all over the country. So it just opened up the country to me in a way that from Studio City, California, not having traveled much, I didn't really uh, understand. I did. I, I loved, I loved meeting kids my roommate was from Gainesville Florida you know and he, he and he said he was talking to me about the you know the confederacy and he said you know we're just in retreat here you know we are coming back but the point of that was is kids from Alabama and Tennessee and Florida and Mississippi that I'd never been exposed to and then other kids from all over the country and they were great young men who became friends for life and they still are today many of them yeah that's one of the things we've lost it seems to me you know, one of the um, one of the assets of uh, derived from World War II was you. Everyone was in. Yeah. People from all across the country fighting side by side, working side by side, yeah. and uh, broke down a lot of barriers. We True. We, we have a, a volunteer army now, and but a lot of them come from relatively few communities, yeah. and we don't have that kind of yeah. uh, sense of of coherence. That I agree. We cut, we're less than we're less than one percent. We're about a half of one percent in terms of overall population. We come from fewer and fewer places. There are so many families in the country that don't have anything to do or know anything about the military. Uh, it's been one of my worries for a while. I I worry that we almost treat our military uh, like the French Foreign Legion, which is we'll pay you pretty well, and the compensation package these days is decent. Please go off and fight our dirty little wars and let us get on with our lives. And I think that's a really bad outcome for the country. Um, I spent a lot of time in the veteran space right now as a retiree uh, and trying to support veterans in lots of challenges that they have when they return home. But it is different. It's dramatically different than it was post-World War II. Uh, One of my learnings, David, from these wars, and this is really Iraq, and Bob Gates and I agree on a lot of things, but one of the things I just didn't agree with Bob on was when he said the president or the next president or next secretary of defense would be crazy to send 100,000 people, 100,000 troops somewhere. And I get that, and I don't think it'll happen immediately. But since 1983, we have not predicted, and that was Grenada. Since, since Grenada, we have not predicted one time where we would be in conflict. So we're not very good at that, anticipating it. What I would do, I personally believe we need to reduce the size of our army 
by about 100,000 to about 350,000 or so. Uh, I don't have an exact number. And the next time we get into a situation where the president wants to go to war, we're going to have to call up a half a million kids. And so the, the conversation about possibly going to war is happening at every dinner table in every family that's got an 18-year-old son or daughter and that they bring that to their elected representatives and then we make a decision, yes, this is worth going for because I'm gonna, we're going to call up a half a million kids. There are, challenges, there are challenges associated with that. But to me, that's the debate we didn't have when we went into Iraq. And this is, you know this as well as I, this is the most significant decision any president ever makes. And what I want to have for the next one, and it's almost become too easy to go to war, I want to have for the next one is that debate. I want to have a raging debate in the country that says, yes, we're going to go to war for this, or no, we're not, uh, because of the sacrifice that I've you've seen and I've seen certainly on the battlefield. It's um, We also have to have... Uh debate around as uh, the best information we can which isn't always yeah, easy to obtain and Iraq is a is a great example Let of me that. actually I, and the reason that I, I want to sorry on the hundred thousand piece the 350,000 size army I could put a hundred thousand somewhere these wars don't end in three months which all of us would like to happen but empirically that just hasn't happened so I could put a hundred thousand somewhere but I couldn't relieve. So you'd them. have the maneuverability to do it. Yeah, but then. But I couldn't need to, relieve them in right, a year. Right. I'd need another hundred thousand to come in in order to relieve them at the end of a twelve-month deployment somewhere. Yeah. That's where that other hundred thousand. Which actually would come became in. an issue uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan because the tours of duty were Absolutely. were so large, Absolutely. long that they were punishing yeah. in ways that. Uh, many paid uh, a price for. Yeah. You, you're uh, you saw some uh, duty. Uh, uh, during Vietnam, around Vietnam, yeah. um, and you've talked about uh, uh, lessons learned from Vietnam. What were the principal lessons you learned from Vietnam? Well, not unlike what I said when I showed up in the academy in '64 and uh, '68. I graduated in '68, so Martin Luther King was killed in April before I graduated. Bobby Kennedy got killed the night before I graduated in the city of Chicago that summer where there's a Democratic convention. Yes. I mean, I I remember the riots and the burnings. I was actually dating uh, my my, my uh, uh, wife. She wasn't my wife at the time in Washington. And I remember Washington being in the spring of 68 being locked down. I couldn't get there uh, by the National Guard because of the riots and the fires, et cetera. So really, really tough times uh, for, for a country. Um, and then I go to a ship. A year later, I deploy. I'm off the coast of Vietnam. Not unlike going to the academy opened up the country, going to the Western Pacific and seeing the Philippines and Japan and being off the coast of Vietnam, it opened up the world to me. And, and in one way, uh, it was very exciting. Uh, I was also doing something I really enjoyed, which was going to, going to sea on ships. I didn't know that before I got on it. And then I'm fighting a war. And I'm Brand new, I'm a brand new officer. I'm just trying to do my job, essentially by the DMZ firing thousands of round rounds in support of uh, uh, army soldiers and Marines that were up fighting around the DMZ over the course of several months in late '69 and early '70. Uh, and that was my first experience, and it was really focused on that more than anything else. I wasn't into the politics of it or why mm -hmm. we were doing it. Two years later, I was on a ship on the East Coast, a different ship that actually got pulled to go through the Panama Canal and go back out there. And this is 72 now. And now I'm sort of, I've gotten to the point now that I'm really wondering about all of this and trying to understand it better. I didn't go back. I actually got pulled off that ship literally the night before it ended back up on the gun line. The scars, you know, I probably the biggest lesson for me are the scars of that time as a you know as a 20 year old or in my 20s which I wore my whole life and which I carried into the job as chairman so one of the things I argued for and Bob Gates and President Obama were supportive of was opening up Dover I wanted the American people to see uh, the faces of those who were sacrificing so much and in, in, in their own way say that this was okay or it's not okay and we got to stop this. 
the military got blamed for the war in Vietnam. When the, when the war in Iraq started, I was a junior three-star at the time, I had two major concerns. One is, would the military be blamed? Because that was my experience. And the other, would we generate another group of homeless vets? Uh, and we have done the latter, and the military wasn't blamed for these wars. And, and we, have, we have stayed separated from the politics of it in, in these wars, as difficult as they have been. Yeah, it's interesting now. You know, I, go, I, I lived through that era. I was, uh, I'm a few years younger than you, but I remember the, the way uh, returning veterans were scorned. Yeah. Yeah. And people yeah. in uniform were scorned. And now you can't go to a sporting right. event without some veteran being, or active Honored. duty, yeah. uh, being introduced. And yeah. e- everyone stands and, yeah. and everyone yeah. cheers regardless of their views of yeah. a particular yeah. decision. And I give, honestly, I give uh, political leaders on both sides of the aisle great credit for for supporting that outcome, if you will, or that output, because I remember when it wasn't the case, and it was exactly as as you described. Um, the you know other lessons is is you know how you get in and how you get out. I mean, war is too easy to get into, and it's Syria is an example, Iraq's an example. Mm-hmm. It's awful difficult to get out. Um, and is this something really worth our national interests at the time? I, one, of my cl- one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm on the Ken Burns' uh, Better Angels Society board, uh, and so we're, we see what he's doing in terms of these documentaries. The Vietnam one, which was last year, I yes. think, was very difficult to watch for me. I got an advanced copy. I could only go so far, but what was breathtaking about it for me and I was a kid that grew up and was very excited about John F. Kennedy. What was breathtaking for me is that Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon all did the same thing, which was delay a significant action to not increase or to, not, to, to avoid the war uh, so that they could get to their next political election. Particularly while I knew that about Johnson, I knew it about Nixon, I didn't know it about Kennedy. And it really sort of took the breath out of me when I saw that. Natural natural politics, I understand that, but it really it really took the breath out of me when I saw that. So those those were very hard lessons from a very difficult time for the country. And it wasn't, you know this, it wasn't just Vietnam. It was a social upheaval of the time. It was drugs uh, in a way that certainly had not existed, you know, in the 50s at all. Mm. There was a lot of uh, a, a lot of churn in the country, and it was political leadership which was despised. And in that time, I mean, one of the things, and I don't know if this is true, I'm not enough of a political historian, but that was the time, I think, Johnson and Nixon that sort of turned the country against the office of the president in a way that had not been the case, certainly, you know, with Roosevelt and Eisenhower in those, in those years. Yeah. And I'm not sure we've recovered. You know, um, it's interesting that you talk about opening up Dover so people could see the human consequences yeah. of, of war and the, the pain in the faces of those who uh, pay the price, uh, family members, yeah. Uh, and loved ones, um, but that is in fact one of the things that um, uh, President Trump is speaking about when he when he says people want our 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 troops home. Sure. Uh, so sure. I mean, it, it, the the country does render uh, a judgment. I'm not, you know, what's interesting about the troops he withdrew was that they were actually stopping uh, yeah. large large scale violence, preventing a genocide. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but but that is part of what animates them. I, I have to run through a few other things sure. here uh, about your life. You got to take over a vessel. Tell me, USS Naksubi. Yes, <laughs> and you had an accident. And uh, actually, in the Navy, we call it a collision. <laughs> uh, but for yeah. which is not a good thing. <laughs> yes, collisions are not good. Yeah. Um, and it was a failure. And you you talk about the fact that yeah. you know you weren't a, you were a basketball star and you would you know you you you've been on a base a pretty a big skiing yeah. up here. Yeah. How, how did how did you how did you deal with failure? Well, it was tough. Uh, and uh, first of all, I found out who my friends were and who they weren't. Um, I couldn't have got. I had two major. That's a great failure. thing about failure. Yeah. I've I've. <laughs> I've 
I had two major failures, another one later on in my career in a ship. Uh, and I couldn't have gotten through it without mentors that, that showed me the way and supported me and thought I still had a future. And when I talk about this, when I teach leadership or talk about leadership, it's the first thing I talk about. Because we're all human, we're all going to fail, and it's not about the failure, it's about what did you learn did you, you know, get yourself up, dust yourself off, learn the lessons, improve, and move on? Uh, and so those are the things that I learned. Uh, um, and I loved going to sea, and I loved sailors. It took me in my career, it took me 11 years to recover from that professionally. Uh, and I actually, in the Navy, we call it a screening process. But on what was the last screening look for command again at a senior level, at the 05 level, commander level I screened um, and uh, and I was lucky to do that and then I had commit several commands after that as well uh, but it still it, it still sticks with me actually it's a buoy 11 down in, in the Thimble Shoals Channel in Norfolk Virginia and I looked at it with scorn every time I went by it after that day but I made a mistake and it was mine the other thing I was captain of a ship I was 26 I was very young but what I learned about the Navy is accountability for the institution that I was in charge of. They gave me the responsibility, and it was, and I was completely accountable. And accountability is something that is very close to my heart. I teach leadership at the Naval Academy right now to seniors. We call them firsties. And that's what I talk about as much as anything in the course, and we go through this failure as well. I actually bring in the class my evaluation which was, uh, I call it an F for failure, for you flunked, you have no future, find something else to do, <laughs> all those things. Uh, and yet I, I persisted. And I also want to give the Navy credit. I mean, the, the military, but in, in my case, the Navy, it's a meritocracy. And it really is, it's not perfect. It doesn't get, every, it, doesn't get it right every time. But by and large, as a meritocracy, if you perform well, it'll, uh, it'll allow you to continue. And you rose up. That you came back, you rose up yeah. that meritocracy. You were working in the uh, Pentagon on September 11th, yeah. 2011. Yeah. Uh, describe that day to me. It was, uh, I'd been back a week. I'd been down in Norfolk. Uh, actually, I'd gone down to Norfolk to take command of Second Fleet, and literally seven days later, the USS Cole, one of my ships, got hit. So Deb and I were with 17 families the next day uh, after Cole got hit. And then uh, I got moved up to the Pentagon very early. I was there seven days, and the plane hit the building. I, after it was all over, I talked to my boss and said, you got to stop moving me around. This is <laughs> not going well. But it, it was the day the world changed from my perspective. You uh, were actually you were, you, yeah, you I was were in, in the building, the building when the, the building. plane hit the building. It actually flew in, and I wasn't in my office. I was about 75 or 100 feet away at a meeting with the chief of naval operations but my two assistants, and we were up on the fourth deck, my two assistants looked out the window and saw a 757 flying under their, under their feet, if you will, that day. Uh, and it was, uh, it w we lost 42 sailors that day that were in our command center. Um, uh, and it, 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 we didn't know, you know, there's been criticism about what we knew and what we didn't know. We didn't know what was going on. I mean, we knew we'd been hit. We didn't know where the next attack was coming from. Uh, and, and so it was very important. We obviously exited the building. It was important to find our people, which we did by about midnight that night, and then to start to rebuild. And then right away, and this is where President Bush, I thought, was exceptionally strong. He really was a strong leader at that point in terms of getting us together. This is what we're going to do. Got us focused, and then we started to move forward uh, to figure out who did it. Um, and and respond, if you will. You you walked six miles that day to the uh, yeah. to the to the navy yards yeah. to to yeah. Uh, yeah. reconnoiter. Well, anybody that remembers it, you remember how what a spectacular day it was. But that was a significant distance across Washington D.C. Uh, and I, with the exception of the National Guard members who were guarding the monuments, Washington D.C. was empty. When I was a kid. There was a movie called On the Beach, yes. Nuclear, and and it ends up with this couple, you know, at the end of nuclear war, and they're the only two on the beach. I literally had that kind of feeling that day. There's nobody in Washington, D.C., which was really, really eerie. And we didn't really know where it was going to go or when the next attack was going to 
but all of us had to figure out how we were going to move forward, which we started to do literally within hours. I got to know you a little bit uh, during the administration. Sure. Uh, there was a lot of contemplation about what to do in Afghanistan. Yeah. There were nine very fateful meetings about a deployment of n- more troops yeah. to Afghanistan. You had a big focus on Afghanistan. And um, tell me about that process and about President Obama versus uh, President Trump as leaders. What kind of- President Trump or President Bush? I'm sorry, President Bush and President Obama. So a Obama. fun story about that is President Obama comes in, you may remember this, and Bob Gates and I, like two or three weeks in, we go on the Sunday shows, separate shows, and of course, the que- one of the questions is going to be, okay, you've been with the pres- new president, what's he like, how does he compare to Bush? Uh, I wasn't going to answer that question because it wasn't going to go well no matter what I said. And Bob Gates answered the question. Bob and I lived next to each other in the, on Navy Hill across the street from the State Department. I saw Bob that afternoon. I said, what were you thinking? He goes, I have no idea what I was thinking. <laughs> because he got a call from the White House you know, that, that wasn't a great call is what he said. Um, what, I, what I take away from my cherished and privileged time serving uh, four years as a chairman for two different parties and two different, obviously two different people, extraordinary people dedicated to our country, cared about America and wanted to do the best they could. I mean, for obviously their beliefs are, are, are different, were different. And we saw that manifest in, in the policies uh, and in their decisions. But I found them both in, in, and I got to President Bush in the middle of the Iraq surge, this is six and a half years. They've had a very tough war. Which you had some doubts about. Yeah. Well, I certainly... About the manpower element. There was no question that from my standpoint, and I was asked shortly after I took over as chairman, I think the comment was, and it was like Skelton that asked me uh, about troops in, uh, do we have enough in Afghanistan? And we clearly didn't to do the mission. Uh, and I said, basically, in Iraq we do what we must, and in Afghanistan, we do what we can. And that really got Chairman Skelton's attention uh, at the time. Uh, but we were very short. We were running what I would call, uh, what we call in the military, an economy of force operation that wasn't going to have any long-term impact. And that's what, obviously, President Obama, uh, when he took over, you know, walked into. And, uh, and a, one of the things that I, I don't think is widely known, President Bush, and I watched him do this on a couple of issues, but the 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 ten thousand uh, troop deployment that we asked President Obama to approve, which turned out to be seventeen thousand, mm-hmm. not too long after he got there, which he did, I would argue, almost on good faith. But President Bush, who could have approved that, said, "No, this is going to have a big impact." When we took it to him in December, I think this is going to have a big impact on the next president. I want to leave that decision for him. And I watched uh, President Bush do that on two or three major parts, and I admired him a lot for that. President Obama, you know, recognized uh, the the immediate need, and so he approved that first one. And then we went into the, you know, the longer term, the Rydell Review, uh, which then got us into the nine meetings and his decision to deploy troops at the end of that year. You talked about the decision to withdraw from Iraq as having helped facilitate ISIS. Obviously, it was President Obama's decision to carry through on a status of forces agreement that the Bush administration had negotiated with uh, the uh, Iraqis. Um, What should have happened then, given the fact that there was this agreement and there was resistance on the part of uh, uh, Iraqis? And secondly... um, do you think history would have been different relative to ISIS if a residual force had been allowed to stay in Iraq? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a it's a fair question. My sense, my sense is that that we, we didn't really need. I mean, we in the in the one case we wanted a, a SOFA status force agreement, but for our presence there, we really didn't need it. Similar to other countries around the world uh, in order to be able to stay there longer. Um, it's very hard to, I mean, I, it's one of these things that ISIS surprised us all. I was stunned when I saw them come back and there's Intel issues associated with that as well. Uh, but I'm, I guess I'm hard pressed to believe they would have come back with a vengeance. They did. Uh, if we'd had some residual presence. You know, I went through the 
drills with Tom Donlin, you know, as national security advisor. And, you know, every meeting was, you know, it was down another number. We started, as I recall, we started at about 25,000 or something like that. But the message was, hey, and honestly, from my perspective, I didn't think it had anything to do with the sofa. I think it had everything to do with we're getting out. Um, and that was a message Tom sent, you know, a thousand different ways in the reviews that we had. And we got to 10. And at some point, and I made it then, and I made it in Afghanistan, I'd make it in Afghanistan at some point, you know, in, in Iraq, it was 10,000. 10,000 is about the same as zero because I'm spending all my time protecting myself, so I can't really carry out that mission. From from where I sat, it looked like there was just absolutely no doubt we were getting out, and I thought the sofa was almost, a, it became, you know, a cause to make this happen as opposed to a real desire to be there and protect our interests at the time. We, we could do a whole show uh, on that, but... Um, I, I want to ask you about two things. You talked yeah. about mentoring. One of one of the people who served under you uh, at the Pentagon, I think, was General McChrystal, yeah. and yeah. he became the commander in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Right. There was an incident uh, that cost him yeah. his career, essentially, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where his uh, he and uh, uh, his charges were in Paris, and there was some yeah. loose talk yeah. about the mainly the vice president, then yeah. Joe Biden. Yeah. And the president had to ask for his yeah. uh, his his dismissal. Uh, that must have been awfully painful for yeah, you. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, in fact, I, and, and I think the world is Stan McChrystal. Uh, he sat where, right where you sat. We had a great conversation. Did then, still do. He's an extraordinary American. Uh, I actually brought him into the Pentagon from Iraq uh, and I can remember how many years he was over there. It was a long time. But I wanted him to make changes in the Pentagon, in the joint staff, if you will, that I watched him make on the battlefield. And then unexpectedly, not uh, unexpectedly, because we had General McKiernan, who was in Afghanistan, and both Dave Petraeus and I and Bob Gates all agreed McKiernan wasn't a good match for for the the uh, the mission He's a good guy. Didn't do anything wrong. He just was not a good match. So that's so we ended up bringing Stan in, and I spent a lot of time talking to Stan before he went about uh, what I've observed is a three star making four stars has to, everybody's got to grow a lot. And his challenge was he's gonna he was gonna have to grow into the Klieg lights. So there was this speech he gave in London yes. which preceded this incident yes. you talk about, uh, and and I think then he and the president met somewhere in Europe. Uh, uh, just to be clear, um, and then obviously this other one, the the the, the Rolling Stone article. Yes. I was literally halfway through it when McChrystal called me, uh, and he says, have you seen it? And I said, I've seen enough of it. He says, uh, he said, should I come home? I said, yeah. Should I draft my letter? I said, yes. And so he just got on a plane, and we moved from that point. But it was an extraordinarily difficult thing to deal with because he was so it was such an extraordinary officer and i'm sure it was a tough decision i talked to the president about it before he made the decision and i'm sure it was a very very well, i can i remember the day he said he called us all in and he said this is a bad day yeah and i don't want anybody treating it anything other than that a, a, a good man just walked out the store and, yeah. and his career was yeah. uh, uh lost and yeah. and uh I, and it's not a good day but so, to his credit uh, Stan McChrystal did the right thing mm-hmm. um, when he certainly sensed that he could have lost the confidence of the commander-in-chief and the right way to do it is to put your letter in, which is what Stan did. You um, you also, and I'll never forget the role you played on, on changing the don't ask, don't tell policy. You testified uh, before... Congress, and you said, I can't escape being troubled by the fact that we have in place a policy which forces young men and women to lie about who they are in order to defend their fellow citizens. For me personally, it comes down to integrity, theirs as individuals and ours as an institution. Those words were incredibly powerful uh, coming from you. And I remember the day the president signed the repeal of the don't ask, don't tell policy. I think it was over at the uh, at the Commerce Department Auditorium, I, I, I think. Actually, I don't know. I can't but, remember. Uh, but, I remember the but, event. But, I don't but, remember where but, it was. Uh, you walked in to, and it was a room full of uh, 
eclectic group, but a lot of activists yeah, and yeah. people have been fighting on this for years. And you got this thunderous uh, applause. Uh, and I was wondering wh- how you, <laughs> how you uh, reacted to that. Well, a couple things. What one is, uh, and President Obama, this was my sense. I didn't do much. You know, I didn't sense much or see much on the domestic side when I was uh, in that job with him for two and a half years. But I know on the don't ask, don't tell piece, he was getting killed by his base. Then the base was worried that the military would roll him, et cetera. And he he trusted us. They wanted him to act on executive authority, which he really, he felt it needed to be done legislatively. And and so he held, he, he basically sustained or he resisted that to get to where we got to. And I have great admiration and appreciation that he would give us the time to do that. Uh, the values-based aspect of that, when I heard him on the campaign trail in 2008, uh, w- when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was past 93, I'm at sea, mm-hmm. I'm sea of a ship, I'm not paying much attention, I'm just carrying out the law. But when candidate Obama said, this is something he's going to do, boom, I start to pay attention because I'm chairman, and then I put together a small group to try to study it, and there'd been precious little work done on it, quite frankly, from the early 90s until this happened. Uh, uh, and then we go through the process and, and it eventually uh, the testimony people say, give me a lot of credit or you were really courageous. It was one of the easiest sentences I ever said in my life because it was values based and it was just, you know, I was just true to my values and it fun. What I didn't appreciate is it fundamentally changed the terms of the debate from, a debate about sex and those kinds of things to values. And even those like Senator McCain, even those who opposed it, they had, I never got questioned on the values aspect of it from that point. So the same values apply to transgender members of the military. Yeah, uh, as far as I'm concerned, they do. The different, the 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 difference on the for me anyway, the difference on the transgender pieces. I actually knew a fair amount about the the gay and lesbian issues. The transgender piece certainly uh, three years ago when that really started to be addressed. There's a lot I still, I didn't know. I've gotten smarter on it now, but it's basically the same thing. Um, and I think the argument that it costs money to do that is specious. It's, it's, it's precious little money, quite frankly. Uh, and it's, I think the numbers upwards of 90%, never 90%, some number like that don't have any medical procedures, if you will, of those who are transgender. So, so it still applies. And then you, so you get, I get your question about, but about that day, you know this as well as I, when you're on the stage with the president, there's only one person that gets a round of applause. That's the president. And I got two of them that day, and the president and so the and, and Vice President Biden were both very gracious. And it was electric. I mean it was a it was I I thought your the 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 ovation you got was really one of the most moving yeah, moments that yeah. I experienced when yeah. uh when I was there. The, one other quick one on that, Joe Joe uh, Joe uh, Lieberman. Lieberman yes. Joe Lieberman standing on the center stage because he had voted for it, et cetera, and I get this big booming applause, and Lieberman looks over. He says, "How do you like that, Mike? I bet, I, I, I bet you never thought you'd be the most popular guy in gay America." <laughs> <laughs> but there you were. Yeah. There you were. Yeah. Um, you you've talked. You know, we've heard General Mattis speak to this. You've spoken to this. Um, the you talked earlier about the State Department and the degradation yeah. of the State Department. From the standpoint of a career military person uh, and a leader, talk about the importance of of diplomacy. Well, I, Mattis said it very succinctly, or I think early in his maybe in his testimony to get confirmed, or early in his tour that you know if you're not going to fund the. If you're not going to fund the State Department, you're going to need to buy me more bullets, and and that's what we believe. Um, when President Obama was in, Secretary Clinton was Secretary of State. We made a conscious decision to testify at each other's uh, committees. So Gates and I would go testify with her in the in the Foreign Relations Committees, and she would testify uh, with us. And that was a, meant to be a very strong message in lots of ways. Uh, I think the State Department is badly underfunded. Uh, they don't have an appetite like we do to put their budget together and defend it. That's another issue. Yes. But but it is something that I think 
we need to invest in that. And part, part of the problem is there aren't State Department outlets in every. I mean, the, the Defense true, Department no, has I, has significant institutions in every and and yeah, constituents and in every state. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. But I, it and I I think that and I would and Bob Gates. I've never I never said it then, but I felt strongly about it. Is take the 50 billion out of the defense department give it to the state department please now there will be arguments about would they spend it well and i understand all that the point is we need to support diplomacy we don't need to lead diplomacy i've talked earlier about it's too easy to go to war um i want i'd love to have a strategic view of syria or iraq or afghanistan and what's, what are all the departments, all the agencies going to do, and how does a military fit into the strategy, as opposed to let's use the military and then we'll figure the rest out after, after they're in. And we've done too much of that from my perspective. So uh, I think that investment is really critical, and I get your point. There are no constituents, there are no votes, but yeah. it's critical for the country. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.